I'm going to open up with a joke today. I'm just going to tell you up front. Because the reason I'm telling you that is because I'm nervous that it's not very funny. Let's just do this, though. So there's a man who went skydiving for the first time, and he's really excited about going skydiving. But just before he's about to jump out of the plane, he gets really nervous. And his instructor tried to calm his nerves by reassuring him that it was going to be safe to jump. And he says, here, let's do this. I'll just review the steps with you again. To reassure you, remember, the parachute is automatic. It's tied by a bungee cord to the plane, and once you've fallen a safe distance from the plane, the bungee cord will be fully extended, and the parachute will automatically deploy. Now, in the unlikely event that it doesn't deploy, don't panic. You can manually pull the cord yourself, and then the parachute will safely deploy. And if for some very, very, very unlikely reason that doesn't work, there's an emergency chute in the back of your pack. You pull that ripcord, and that'll deploy and you're going to safely float down to the field below you. Now, when you get down to that field, when you land, there will be a minivan that's waiting for you. And that minivan is going to pick you up and take you back. There's the plan. You're going to be fine. So the guy gets up the courage, and he goes, all right, I'm going to do this. And he jumps out of the plane. But as he gets a safe distance, <laughs> this is so bad. But as he, <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this. Forgive me. But he gets a safe, <laughs> he gets a safe distance from the plane, and the bungee cord snaps, and it fails to deploy. The chute fails to deploy, but he doesn't panic. Just like his instructor told him, he reaches for the ripcord, and he manually pulls it. Unfortunately, it still doesn't deploy. At this point, he's getting pretty angry with his instructor. He's got a few choice words for him, but then he remembered the emergency chute. Uh, it's there, so he reached back there. He pulled to the back of the chute, pulled that cord, and again, the emergency chute did not deploy. So here's this guy hurtling towards Earth at about 100 miles an hour. He looks up to the sky, he's furious, <sighs> he sighs and says, man, I bet that minivan won't be waiting for me there either. <laughs> Not too bad. <laughs> oh, that's a Steve Wallen joke. If it didn't go well, I was going to blame Steve. So <laughs> the point of that really bad joke was to illustrate that sometimes it's easy to lose trust in people. We live... We are broken people living in a broken world, and when people let you down, when people disappoint you or mislead you, or when people hurt you, it's easy to lose trust in people, isn't it? And if we're not careful, that mistrust in people can lead to an, an attitude of cynicism. And cynicism is dangerous. And today we're going to look at how cynicism can ruin, can ruin your relationship with the Lord. In fact, I'm going to show you four prayerful attitudes that you can have to overcome the obstacle of cynicism. Four ways to keep cynicism from ruining your prayer life and your relationship with God. Before we go any further, would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful for what you're doing in the life of this church. God, I see you drawing us closer to you. I see you stirring in us a hunger to grow in the place of prayer. Father, we ask you, just like the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And I pray this morning, Lord, the next half hour or so, God, that you'd speak to each one of our hearts. I trust that everyone here is here for a reason, Lord. And so I pray that you would open our hearts and you would open our ears and that you would speak and that we would hear your voice, God. We want to learn how to pray. Would you teach us, Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, my name's Kevin Russell, and as Paul mentioned, we're in a series called A Praying Life. It's based on a book right here, 
uh, of the same name written by author Paul Miller. I know many of you are reading this book. How many of you, raise your hand if you picked up a copy and are reading this book with us. Oh, good, good, that's great, many of you. I want you to know, if you've not picked up a copy of this, if you've not read this yet, it's not too late. Uh, we mentioned last week that on Amazon you can find it for about 10 bucks, and I would really, really encourage you to pick it up and, and follow along with us. One of the reasons why I love this book is because Miller does such a great job of teaching a biblical view of prayer. You know, prayer is so much more than just the words we say. Prayer is all about our relationship with God. In fact, last week, if you were here, for the sake of this series that we're in, we are defining prayer like this. We're saying prayer is relating to God like God wants us to relate to him. It's not on the screen, but it's in your hearts. <laughs> prayer is relating to God the way God wants, you, wants us to relate to him. Well, how does God want us to relate to him? Last week, we looked at how Jesus taught his disciples to relate to God like a child relates to his father. We identified three ways that we can relate to God like a child. First, we said like a child, we can bring our real, messy self to God. We don't have to clean up ourselves or clean up our act before we come to God. Second, like a child, we can share whatever's on our heart and mind with God. When we pray, we can take off the religious filters. We can stop worrying about saying the right words in the right ways. Third, like a child, we can bring our needs to our Heavenly Father because He loves us and He loves taking care of us and meeting our needs. And today, we're going to address this, uh, this obstacle, one of, I think, one of the greatest obstacles that keep us from relating to God like a child, and that is the obstacle of cynicism. In chapter 9 of his book, Paul Miller says this, Miller says, the opposite of a childlike spirit is cynicism. The opposite of a childlike spirit is cynicism. Now, what is cynicism? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines cynicism as this. When a person is distrustful of human nature and motives, or it's the belief that people are motiva motivated primarily by self-interest. So when you doubt someone's motives and you distrust them, you have an attitude of cynicism. I, this week as I was praying through this and thinking through this, I thought, you know, cynicism is really like a two-sided coin. On one side of the coin, you have doubt, and on the other side of the coin, you have distrust. Here's how this works. If you believe a person has your best interest at heart, you will trust them. If you're convinced that an individual cares about you, is on your side, is working toward your good, you will trust them. And when you trust a person, you'll draw close to them. And you'll open up your heart and your life to them and you'll share life with them. We see this in young children. A young child will instinctively trust his or her parents because a good parent has their child's best interest at heart and takes good care of the child, protecting the child, nurturing the child, supporting and encouraging the child, working for the good and the well-being of that child. However, if you lose trust in someone, when that person or when a person says something to you or maybe does something to you, and it gives you an indication that they may not really care about you. Or they make a decision or they take some sort of action that really hurts you. When you get hurt by someone, that's when doubt begins to creep in. And if you doubt, if you're uncertain, if you're not convinced that a person really cares about you or has your best interest in mind, if you don't think they are concerned about your ultimate well-being, then you won't trust them. And if you don't trust them, here's what you do. You will distance yourself relationally from them. You will relationally withdraw from them. You won't open up. You won't share your heart or your life with them. Sometimes it's wise 
to distrust and doubt someone. If someone truly doesn't have your best interest in mind, if they are unsafe and if they're a hurtful person and they've been hurting you, then, a good, then it can be a very good thing and a healthy biblical thing to draw a boundary and keep yourself at a safe distance from them until trust is earned and reestablished and rebuilt in that relationship. But if we're not careful, we can develop a pattern or an attitude of cynicism that can hurt all of our relationships. And we can end up relationally withdrawing from everyone. And when this happens, our hearts begin to harden toward people. And our souls begin to dull. And we end up not only cynical, but we end up bitter and angry. And you end up not having any close relationships with anyone. And that can happen in our relationship with God as well. And this problem goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And you know the scene, God creates Adam and Eve, and he's walking with them in the garden. He's living with them in the garden. They have this unbroken, peaceful relationship with God, and they're under the leadership and the lordship of God. They're following him. They're trusting him. They're living their lives in submission to him, but then the enemy shows up. The enemy shows up, and here's what he does. Satan tempts them to doubt. Satan tempts them to doubt the goodness of God's character and motives. If you're taking notes, I think you should write this down. Let me say it again. Satan tempts Adam and Eve to doubt the goodness of God's character and the goodness of his motives. And their doubt leads to distrust. Two sides of the same coin. And when they lose trust in God, what do they do? They relationally withdraw from God. They distance themselves from him. They turn away from him. They go their their own way. And that's what led to man being separated from God. And that's why we're broken people living in a broken world in desperate need of rescue. Let's look at Genesis 3 together real quick. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? See, he's just trying to plant the seed of doubt. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. That's a lie. God didn't tell him not to touch it. So now she's adding things to it. Keep going. You will not certainly die, the serpent says to her in response. That's a lie. For God knows that you will eat from it and your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now what's what's Satan doing here? God withheld one thing from Adam and Eve in the garden. If you would imagine, everything was available to Adam and Eve. All of their needs were being met. Uh, They had purpose, they had meaning, they had fulfillment, they had relationship. But God withheld one thing from them. And he withheld that one thing from them to protect them and to take good care of them. But Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he lies to them about God's intentions. He tries to convince convince them that God's motives were impure and God's motives were somehow unloving. God's command wasn't for your protection. It's not for your good. He doesn't have your best interest in mind, Satan says. He's not going to take care of you, so you better take care of yourself. And that's the same lie he he says to us and he whispers into our ears too. God's not going to take care of you. You better take care of yourself. You ever kind of have that thought in your mind? Do you ever wonder if God's really going to take care of you? Do you ever find yourself struggling to want to take control of your life and take control of the circumstances of your life and try to take care of yourself and your life? Satan tempting us. It's a lie. 
The question that Satan tempts us, it's the same one that, that, that Satan tempts us with today. Do you think God's really going to take care of you? Satan, in essence, says this. Hey, Adam and Eve, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. Doesn't it feel like, doesn't it sometimes feel like God is holding out on you? And we're just being really candid and really honest. Maybe there's been times in your life, maybe you're in one of those circumstances right now, where if you, if you were honest, you'd say, you know what, I, I struggle at times. I'm wondering, is God holding out on me? Why isn't he answering my prayer? Why isn't God changing your circumstances? Why isn't God bringing healing? Why isn't God taking this problem away? Problem away? Why? 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 It's okay to ask God why. It's okay to ask God why. I think it's good to cry out why to God. Jesus cried out why. In the garden, he says, why, God? My God, my God, why? On the cross, he says, why? But here's the deal. I want to encourage you this morning to not let Satan take your question of why, your lack of understanding, and cause you to doubt the goodness of God's character and his motives for your life. When we experience problems, when we experience pain and suffering, we begin to doubt God's motives. And because of our pain and, uh, our, pain and our confusion, it leads us to doubt, and doubt leads to distrust. We begin to doubt and ask ourselves, does God really have my best interest at heart? When we experience pain, we think, this can't be good for me. Why would God allow this? If God has my best interest in mind, why would he allow this problem or this pain or this suffering in my life? Here's, here's one of our problems. Our problem is that we have a bad definition of, the, of good. See, the world defines good as a life free of pain and problems, doesn't it? In fact, that's the picture that most movies paint. That's the picture that Disney World point paints. That's the picture that most fairy tales paint. That's the picture that we see in our world. That good equals a life free of pain and free of problems. We're so ingrained with this faulty view of good that anytime pain or problems arise, our immediate response is, this is bad. In fact, let's flip it around. If we're in a season of life where we're free from pain and we're not experiencing any problems and someone comes to you and says, hey, how are things going? You say, good. Things are good. Things are real good. I'm not experiencing any pain or any problems. Life is good. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, we want a life. I, I, there's nothing wrong with a life free from pain and free from problems. I'd I, I like that too. But we've got we to gotta have a biblical definition of, of what it means to experience good. What does it mean for God to want good for us? What does it mean for God to want us to experience good things in our life? I think the best definition for a biblical definition of the word good comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We quote this all the time, and we really take it out of context, okay? So let me, let me make sure we're all on the same page here. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Pause right there, okay? Look at me. How many times? Has anybody ever quoted that passage? Raise your hand if you ever quoted that passage, right? How many, times have you, how many of you have heard that passage? Raise your hand. All right. Now, what we typically do is we typically say, well, God's going to work this out for your good. But if we don't define good and things unfold in a way that don't seem to work out in our favor or in our definition of good, we begin to doubt that that scripture is true and we begin to doubt God. What does Paul mean when he says God is going to work things out in your life for your good? What's the good Paul's speaking of? Keep reading. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image of his son. Say that with me. Conformed to the image of his son. That's God's good plan for your life. It's not that he wants us to have a life free of pain and problems. Our good, God's working for our good. God's working in your life to transform you into the image of his son, Jesus. And sometimes, in fact, most times, the way he transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus, is he puts us through fire. The fire of pain and suffering and uncomfortableness. And when we get in uncomfortable circumstances of life, painful circumstances of life, if we'll turn to God, he'll use those circumstances to transform us into the image of his son, Jesus. He'll make us more like Jesus, turn us in, give us the character of Jesus. He'll use circumstances to make us more humble and more loving, more kind and more patient, more gentle. One of my favorite character traits of God is that he is a redeemer. I love that God is a redeemer. Redeeming, the word redeemer, means to take something of little value. To redeem means to take something of little value or no value and exchange it for something of great value. So God wants to take things in our lives that don't seem to have any value in our, in our, in our view of things, and he wants to use them for great value. You've heard, uh, you've heard some of those challenges. Maybe you've seen this on the internet. I don't know if anybody of you have ever, have ever tried this, but have you ever, you ever seen those challenges where someone says they start like with a paperclip, you know? And the objective is to swap it for something of greater value. And then you keep swapping it and keep swapping it. And you end up, you know, like with a $50,000 car. Has anybody ever seen this? Have you seen this on, on, uh, on, on the YouTube? You, you can redeem this. I mean, you can uh, Google this. And uh, I don't think, I, it's never worked for me. So if anybody's ever, if you want to help me do that, I'd love to do that. In fact, i got a paper clip. If you can get me a minivan, I've got a fourth child coming soon. <laughs> Uh, if you weren't here last week, my wife's pregnant. Um, God wants to take this pain and the circumstances in our life, and he wants to use it for our good. He wants to transform us into the image of Jesus. He wants to use it for eternal good. And sometimes we can see, we can face difficult circumstances, and we can begin to doubt the goodness of God's character or the goodness of his intentions in our life, and that leads to cynicism. Well, we want to fight cynicism, so how do we do it? Okay, let's get to the four prayerful attitudes. There are four prayerful attitudes that we see in Scripture. Number one, be hopeful. Be hopeful. Romans chapter 5. Follow along as I read this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. What? How many of you say, man, I, I want to glory in my suffering? Right? Paul says we glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that our suffering does what? It produces the character of Christ. Watch this. It produces perseverance and perseverance character. And character, the character of Christ leads to what? Hope. Because that's what our hope is in, that God is making us more like Jesus. Next verse, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope doesn't disappoint us. Hope is going to come through. Hope, an attitude of hope that God has good plans for us is good. Our hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love, check this out, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Keep going. 
What's our hope in? Paul's going to say, here's what your ult- now Paul's going to tell us what our ultimate hope is in. You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. God demonstrates his love for you and for me in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I've been meditating on that last phrase for almost a year now. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I just keep coming back to that over and over and over again. That's a demonstration of God's love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news. Our hope is in the good news of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the gospel. We are broken people living in a broken world. Where's the hope? The hope is in Jesus Christ, that he has come, that he was Uh, that he was fully God and fully man, that he lived on this earth, that he never separated himself from God, that he lived fully obedient to God. He obeyed God all the way to the cross, died on the cross, paid for your sins and mine, was buried, stayed in the grave for three days, rose from the grave, came back to life, appeared to more than 500, we're told, eventually ascended into heaven, and right now our hope is in the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, that he's alive today, that he's real. And not only that he's he's sitting at the right hand of God, but that he's still actively involved in our lives. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We have this hope, this hope that Jesus, what's the hope? Our hope is in Jesus. And that hope is an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What's a high priest do? He's praying for us. Our hope, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Jesus. Not only in the good news that he came and he died on the cross for our sins, our hope is also that he's at the right hand of God right now actively praying for you. Isn't that exciting? Doesn't that encourage your heart? That Jesus is alive and he's praying for you today. There's hopeful. That brings hope to my soul that in spite of my circumstances, no matter what I'm facing, Jesus is praying for me. I mean, I want you to pray for me and I appreciate your prayers, but come on. I got Jesus praying for me. That brings hope to my soul. And so how should we respond? 1 Peter 1.13, therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, wake up and believe this. Peter says, wake up, sober up, pay attention, believe that the good news is that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that he's alive today and he's at the right hand of God and he's praying and he's coming back. Put, get, wake up, set your hope on the grace that we brought to you when Jesus Christ is, is revealed at his coming. Our, our, our next hope is what? That he's coming back. That he's coming back and that he's going to return. Not only did he die, but he rose from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he's praying on our behalf, and that he's coming back. That's where we put our hope. We don't put our hope in this world. That's why we can have an attitude of hopefulness. And I think we should pray for it. I think we should pray for it. Look at this, Romans 15, 13. The Apostle Paul prays this. He says, may the God of hope, God is the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Leave this up here for a second, Russ. Satan got Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness and doubt that God had their best interest in mind. And their doubt led to distrust, and that distrust led to distancing themselves in their relationship with him. He tries to do the same thing with you and me. And oftentimes, that's one of the reasons why we never really get to the place of prayer. Because the truth is, we don't trust God. 
We don't draw near to someone we don't trust. Paul says, if you trust in him, if you trust in God, you're going to be able, you're going to begin to overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the first attitude is be hopeful. The second prayerful attitude is to be thankful. Be thankful. Thankfulness is a great antidote for cynicism. Just going to look at a few verses that remind us of this. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. If you find yourself in difficult circumstances right now, if you find yourself suffering some pain and facing some problems, I want you to find a way to be thankful. Number one, you can thank, thank him for the hope that you have in Christ that we just talked about. Number two, you can thank him that he's with you, that he promises that he's with you. Number three, you can, pro- you can thank him that, he's, that he sees you. Psalm 139 says, I see you, and I'm, I'm familiar with all of your ways. That he sees us, that he's with us, that he wants to walk us through, go through uh, the life circumstances with us. We can thank him and ask him for help in the circumstances we're facing. Colossians 3.17 says this, whatever you do, whether word and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A great example of being thankful is the Apostle Paul. He was thankful in the midst of really painful and un, uh, uh, ridiculous circumstances. In the book of Acts, in Acts 16, 16 we see Paul traveling with uh, his kind of ministry partner Silas. And Paul and Silas run into a woman in, in, in Acts 16, and, and her name is Lydia, and she's a merchant. And Paul shares the gospel with her, and she accepts Christ as Lord. And she's actually the first documented Christian believer in Europe. And, and right after that, Paul and Silas have this encounter with, uh, with uh, this, this lady who is uh, a fortune teller. And they're going around preaching, and this fortune teller follows them around, heckling after them. And after a few days, Paul and Silas realize that this fortune teller is demon-possessed. And so they perform an exorcism on her. And all of a sudden, they're in big trouble. Because this woman is freed. And she's freed from the demonic oppression. And without the demon, she can't tell people's fortunes. And without the fortune teller, she can't make money for her owners. And so this woman's owners go grab Paul and Silas and drag them before the authorities. And the scripture says they were stripped down, beaten with rods, severely flogged, and then thrown into prison. That's not a good day. Not a good day. Makes my challenges in life. All right. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes. If you think about this, okay? Wouldn't you think that Paul wouldn't want to ever go back to Philippi? Wouldn't you think that Paul would, it, it, Paul would, when he thought about Philippi, and thought about this place and where all of this happened, wouldn't you think he'd say, no way, I'm not going back there. You think about like a restaurant, you know? You go to a restaurant, go to a fast food restaurant. Mine was rallies. I did this. Uh, do we have rallies here? Yeah, okay. So several years ago, I, I went to rallies and ate a burger there, and like within an hour, I blah, vomited all up. And I haven't gone back to rallies since. And I ain't ever going back to rallies, right? What's it for you, you know? Is it Taco Bell, you know? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? That's gourmet food. Um, but you have, this, you have a painful experience, and you think, I'm going to distance myself from that. I don't want to go back there. I don't have anything to do with it. Paul, you think Paul would have that attitude towards Philippi and his experience there and and even towards those people that he was beaten for. But look at verse, Philippians verse 1, 
uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 5. He says this. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Whoa! Every time I remember you, I thank my God. Not, not every time I remember you, I think about the time that I took that beating for you. No, he says, I, I remember you. I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, Paul was thankful that they accepted the good news of the gospel, that they were converted, that they gave their life to Christ. And not only was he thankful that, that of, what, of what God did in them, he was also thankful for what God was doing through them, that they were now partners in the gospel. Paul had an eternal perspective. He says this in verse 6. Paul says, being very confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion as of the day of Christ Jesus. Paul has this horrible experience with these people, and because of these people, he has this painful experience. And yet, when he thinks of them and he thinks of that experience, he says, I'm thankful for what God did in you and through you and what God is going to continue to do through you. That's a great attitude to have. What an eternal perspective. Be hopeful. Be thankful. Number three, be repentant. Be repentant. Now, how does repentance help us overcome the obstacle of cynicism? Remember that Satan tempted Adam and Eve to doubt the goodness of God's character and motives, and their doubt led to distrust, and because they lost trust in God, they turned away from God, they went their own way, and that's what leads to brokenness. So what do we do when we find, we haven't, we've, when we find ourselves not trusting in God's goodness? What do you do right now? If you're thinking to yourself, I'm struggling to trust God's goodness, I'm doubting that God is good and has my well-being in mind, that he's going to take good care of me. If you find yourself trusting, uh, struggling to trust that God is good and his plans for you are good, what do you do? You repent. You repent. You confess your sin and repent. Not trusting in God is a sin. When Adam and Eve turned away from God, their sin led to, it led to sin and brokenness. How do we get back? We turn back to God. We turn back to God through Jesus Christ. We turn back to the cross. We thank God for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And we turn back to God and we say, God, I want to just believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I trust that you're good. I trust that you're good. The next thing you need to do, next thing you need to do if you're struggling to trust God is to repent, to turn back to God. Paul Miller says in his book that repentance is a lifestyle. He says, by cultivating a lifestyle of repentance, of keep continually turning back to God when we realize we've turned away from him, he says we develop integrity and a pure heart and our fractures, our fractures, fractures are healed. So number one, be hopeful. Number two, be thankful. Be repentant. Number three, be, be repentant. And finally, be looking. Be looking. Now what do we mean by be looking? What's an attitude of looking? It means, are you looking for the presence of Jesus in your life? In every instance, in every circumstance, in every, whether it's a problem, whether it's a situation, whether there's pain, whether there's circumstances, you could start to become cynical and start to ask yourself, well, where's Jesus in this? I encourage you to take the attitude of looking for Jesus. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says this. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Don't look at your life circumstances through the lens of this world. Look at your life circumstances through, the, through an eternal lens and look for Christ. Christ is working. Miller says this, cynicism looks for the cracks in Christianity instead of looking for the presence of Jesus. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our broken circumstances and the problems we face, Jesus is there. He's with us. 
I always like imagining this snowstorm. Imagine the snowstorm, central Indiana, pretty easy to imagine. It's very cloudy, so it's not a lot of sunlight. It's dark, it's snowing really hard, it's very windy, and the wind is blowing the snow in your face, and so your visibility is very, very low. And you almost have to kind of guard your eyes because the snow is beating against, the snow and the wind is beating against your face, and it's dark, and it's cold, and you can't see. And I want you to imagine Jesus standing in front of you. And he looks over his shoulder and he says, just follow me. Keep your eyes, Hebrews says, fixed on Jesus. Maybe the truth we all need to hear this morning is that our Heavenly Father loves us and that he enjoys us and that he wants to take good care of us and that he really does want our good, and that he's motivated, about, he's motivated to bring about good in your life and mine. And like a good father, he has our best interest at heart, and he's concerned about our well-being. Don't fall for the temptation. Don't let Satan deceive you. God is good. He's working for your good. You can trust your heavenly father. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful that you are a good father, that we can trust. Father, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that there are some people in this room who Satan has been whispering in their ear and been trying to get them to doubt your goodness, Father. I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you will cancel that lie, that you will silence those whispers, and that you would speak truth into our hearts this morning, God, that you will remind us that you're good and that we can trust you with all of our heart. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.